0: play some more of this Ramsey Lewis trio and some Vince Guaraldi right here on the Sunday Forum we'll be right back
1: From NPR News, I'm Giles Snyder. Pope Francis delivered his traditional Christmas Day message today focusing at length on what he called the icy winds of war that continue to buffet humanity. NPR Silvia Pajoli reports from Rome.
2: In his message, Pope Francis said the people of Ukraine are experiencing this Christmas in the dark and cold in homes devastated by 10 months of war. And may the Lord enlighten the minds of those who have the power to silence the thunder of weapons, the Pope said, and put an immediate end to this senseless war. Turning to other parts of the world, Francis said, our time is experiencing a famine of peace, citing Syria, Lebanon, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Sahel, Yemen, Myanmar, Iran, and Haiti. And he condemned the use of food as a weapon, saying the war in Ukraine has put millions, from Africa to Asia, on the brink of famine. The Pope urged people to overcome the shallow glitter and give aid to the homeless, the poor, and migrants. Sylvia NPR News, Rome.
1: Three foreign aid organizations are suspending their work in Afghanistan following the Taliban order banning women from being employed at humanitarian agencies. Jan Egoland is with the uh, Norwegian Refugee Council.
3: Taliban ban on female uh, colleagues means
2: we cannot operate. We will not operate. We cannot do it without a female
1: staff. The NRC, along with Save the Children and Care, have issued a joint statement saying they will fight the Taliban directive, saying it affects thousands of jobs in the midst of an enormous economic crisis. China's National Health Commission says it will no longer release daily figures for coronavirus cases. Such data has been published for the past two years. The commission didn't give a reason for the change. It said relevant coronavirus information would be published by the Chinese Center for Disease Control and Prevention. But it did not say how frequently it would be updated. Here's the BBC's Ben Lowings.
3: Analysts have cast doubt on recent figures showing a nationwide surge, but no deaths. Less testing is being done across China as restrictions have been eased. On Sunday, state media reported that intensive care units in Beijing hospitals were under pressure from a rise in admissions among elderly people. Unconfirmed reports say doctors are being brought in from provincial areas to help ease problems in the capital. Chinese officials expect another wave in January when large numbers of people travel for the Lunar New Year holiday.
1: Power outages have dropped off following that huge winter storm that hit much of the country. Tens of thousands have remain without electricity on the East Coast this Christmas Day. Officials in Buffalo, New York, say there have been more than 50 rescues of people trapped in their vehicles amid blizzard conditions. This is NPR. Severe winter weather is taking its toll on movie box offices this weekend. NPR's Bob Bondello has details.
4: With Christmas falling on a Sunday, which means light attendance on usually busy Saturday night, this weekend was always going to be a rough one for Hollywood. But with sub-zero temperatures and close to 80 multiplexes forced to close from Portland to Cincinnati to Buffalo, the box office outlook has gone from bad to, well, Not too bad. Total North American revenues will still top $100 million for the weekend. Avatar The Way of Water will be closing in on a billion dollars worldwide by Monday. And the animated comedy Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, is getting its wish. Off to a good start with kids out of school. Bob Mundello,
1: NPR News. In Arizona, Judge has rejected Republican Carrie Lake's attempt to overturn her defeat in the Arizona governor's race, saying this weekend that there is no clear or convincing evidence of misconduct that would have changed the outcome of the November election that was won by Democrat Katie Hobbs. They claim that problems with some ballot printers were the result of intentional misconduct. She says she will appeal the ruling. Police in Minnesota say five young people are under arrest in Friday night's fatal shooting at the Mall of America. The police chief in Bloomington says they will face murder charges. The suspects are all male. Three of them are 17 years old. The other two are 18. Police are still searching for a sixth suspect in the shooting that left a 19-year-old man dead. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations.
3: Other contributors include Total Wine & More, where shoppers can explore over 8,000 wines, 2,500 beers, and 4,500 spirits. More at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. Hello, I'm Mark Perfetti, co-host of the Live Music Showcase and step outside on WMNF. Want to give the gift of live music this holiday season? For a donation of just $100, you can have two tickets to our shows of Chuck prophet on January 11th and the Harlem Gospel Travelers on February 10th. Both shows are at Skipper Smokehouse in Tampa. For the gift that keeps on giving, go to WMNF.org slash events. Hi there, this is Marvin from the Rhythm Revival every Friday on WMNF 88.5. My co-host, Reverend Billy Seaworks, is gonna be live and in person as he opens for Marsha Ball at Skipper's Smokehouse on Friday, January 13th. Tickets and more information can be found at skippersmokehouse.com.
0: Well, hello. This is DJ Spaceship reminding you that every Sunday at 9 p.m., tune into the Righteous Temple of Hip Hop. Music with a message, with the temple crew, and be inspired. The Righteous Temple of Hip Hop, more
5: than just music. It's inspiration.
2: You wanna play What If? Sure, how do you play? easy. Just imagine
3: something that you'd like to see happen.
2: Like having it rain tacos on Tuesday?
3: Or how about a four-hour
2: block of folk and acoustic music on WMNF? You don't have to imagine that. It's happening every Sunday morning, starting at 10 a.m. with Postmodern Hoot Nanny, hosted by me, Ed Lehman, featuring you and exciting Americana music along with classic folk favorites.
3: And that's followed at noon for two hours with the Acoustic Peace Club, with me, Jeannie Holton, and Nathaniel Cox, featuring the best of folk and singer-songwriters with great topical songs and music that matters. Get your four-hour fix of folk music every Sunday starting at 10 a.m. right here on WMNF Tampa.
2: What about my Taco Tuesday?
5: This ain't the Food Network, Ed. Oh,
0: We are back this Christmas morning.
5: What is an affirmation?
0: Eight minutes, eight minutes after nine, and you are listening to the sounds. Actually, we
5: also associate practice of
0: is that Venus? Yeah, B, that's Venus. Venus, I accidentally put her on, but that's okay. That's all right. That's (laughs) all right. That's all right. Um, Venus is local, right? Yeah, yeah, she sure is local artist. We're gonna play some of her this morning. Matter of fact, we'll play it right now. We'll play it right okay. now. So we, this is the sound of... You go ahead and introduce it,
3: Mobility. Yeah, this is Venus Jones. And uh, in this particular uh, cut, she's talking about affirming our thoughts, words, and actions. And uh, the run-up to Kwanzaa.
5: Even if you're not there yet, it's a hope. It's what I declare to be. Or any statement you believe to be true. I want you to consider that while listening to or memorizing some of these words. And if you choose the word I, or if you find yourself wanting to be someone else's spiritual coach, and saying the word you, no matter. Remember, the focus in the end is we. Kwanzaa means first, in Kiswahili, But I want to remind you about the last word after each affirmation I offer, a final request or grace for the value we are embracing my last word is ashe. Ashe is a Yoruba word used in West African spirituality and it literally means with strength, the power, and the God within. Let it be so. Which makes it very similar to amen or amen in the Christian tradition. You can learn about my first Kwanzaa experience on a companion CD, but now I want to share with you my first introduction to affirmations. It may have been your first introduction, and you didn't even know it. Do you remember when we were younger and children made fun of us because that was their job, (laughs) to be cruel at times? Well, I remember my mom telling me to tell them, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. (laughs) Well, if I said it with enough conviction, I actually believed it. But I noticed at other times that it didn't work, and it wasn't always true. still doesn't always ring true to this day. But it was a declaration because it just meant that in that moment, I was in charge of my emotions. Yet if we are to be honest with ourselves, we know words can hurt and they can also heal. Especially depending on the delivery and the package they come in. So, that's what I want you to think about when using this tool is your delivery. And the fact that words can't be healing mechanisms. When I got a little heavier into affirmations from my own experience was when I ran into a uh, acting coach. Um, I am an accomplished actress, uh, model, and, and poet, and I am always looking for ways to improve <laughs> when I'm not being negative. <laughs> and this specific coach, um, he wanted me to look into the mirror and say things like, I am happy." I'm healthy. I'm terrific. I'm making big money in commercials right now. (laughs) And when I would read something like that, I started laughing because I didn't believe it. And I thought, why would I say that? First of all, especially something like I'm making big money in commercials right right now. But the more I researched it, the more I realized most successful people do accentuate the positive. Mr. Collier even had me sing (laughs) the song Accentuate the Positive, right? I didn't want to do that either. But then I tried it. And gradually, after a few songs and a few reads, there was a shift. And mark my words, eventually I began to ace my auditions. And I was making big money in commercials, so when I got to that line on my paper, it wasn't funny anymore, because it was true. Now someone might ask, is your success due to the affirmations and I would have to say that they definitely helped me get there but it wasn't the affirmations alone because the universe rewards actions not thinking the thought sparks the command and the command leads to the movement growing up in the Christian tradition I was taught in church that God helps those who help themselves there is a belief factor with the idea of ask and it shall be given those who step out on faith know we name it and then we claim it there is nothing different here When you begin to reclaim that type of power, no matter your belief in the divine or not, make no mistake, nine times out of ten, the ego, fear, doubt, or what some call the devil, will erupt. And you have to welcome whatever pain you're feeling, because you can let it go after you welcome it. And it may sound crazy, but whatever you resist, it will persist. So when you claim your divine power, the devil will appear or fear will be near but you just got finished claiming your desire with a clear vision. So when fear erupts, you know it's time to stand up and face your fear and believe in what you are affirming, and change will come. Change will come, and that's without a doubt.
0: All right, all right, all right. That is the sounds of Venus, Venus Jones. Venus Jones. Venus Jones, <laughs> our very own Venus Jones. right Very personal Timberry. testimony. Yeah. <laughs> And it's an affirmation uh, for Kwanzaa, right? Mm-hmm. Or affirmation period, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is That was really, really, uh, that was great. That was great. Great beat. Yeah. Like Wonderful that. music in the background. Wonderful music in the background. All right, so now, my turn. <laughs> my turn. Okay, so listen, this is one of my favorites, another one of my favorites here. Um, and I've played it on the show before. Uh, One Christmas And it was It it is definitely A a classic By the late Great Ahmad Jamal And this uh, Is The song That you're about to hear Was Actually performed Around the world And it was a hit A jazz hit And it actually Is not a Christmas song Strangely enough It is not a Christmas song But a lot of people Think it is Um, This song, this particular uh, rendition of it uh, Is played by Ahmad Jamal Was played by him in Chicago in 1958 At the Pershing And this is Poinciana Right here on the Sunday Forum at 8.5 Tampa, Sarasota, St. Pete. Amah Jamal, y'all. Merry Christmas. The sound of of a Jamal The legendary Amar Jamal uh, Poinciana Played at the Pershing In 1958 And it, it, again Classic folks, tune That's a classic tune man Classic tune This guy was, uh, was A piano genius And actually That is not a Christmas song But a lot of people think That Poinciana is, is a uh, Christmas song But it's mm-hmm. Christmasy Yeah Right And it puts you It puts you in the mood uh, You know the, the whole Christmas mood man So um, I like it I love it My
3: wife loves it And where is Poinciana Is that a place Where they grow poinsettias? Right You know <laughs> That's a good point Which it looks like Christmas plant, yeah. Yeah
0: Exactly I, I don't know Where you got that from I have to research that one That that was just an aside A a little side note there Yeah (laughs) (laughs) All right. So Check it out Um, We had a We had a um, A request Right? Earlier Okay From our dear friend Daryl Uh, And it just happened to be That we Have it lined up And this is from uh, Vince Guaraldi for those of you who don't know who Vince Guaraldi is he was a another piano genius um, jazz great uh, and he was the man who actually was behind the sound of Charlie Brown the Peanuts uh, cartoon by Charles Schultz now let, let, me, let me just say this so that you know uh it was much of the sound, as Daryl pointed out, much of the sound of Garaldi came from training and from, and from actual development on the part of the, uh, gosh, uh, what's, what's the gentleman's name? Uh, the black family, j- jazz family.
3: Mercedes? Mercedes? Marsalis, Mercedes.
0: By, by the Marsalis family yeah. right um, by his father uh, by Winter Marcellus, his father and um, who, who worked with them on these on these creations that we see that we see now uh, on Charlie Brown so when you hear that nice music that nice jazz music on Charlie Brown just know the Marsalis family had something to do with developing that music, and much of it was actually made by them, but just actually played by Vince Guaraldi. Truth, okay, truth, truth. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna play something from Vince Guaraldi and the Charlie Brown
3: Christmas. All right, it's Christmas Day and it's Children's Day if you're in Sub-Saharan Africa. Really, it's all about the children, isn't it?
0: It is. It really If yes. strange, fat, white men... And red and white that, <laughs> they're breaking into the homes right. to, give, to give gifts to everybody and <laughs> you eat your cookies and drink the milk <laughs> yeah. that's a strange concept yeah. I gotta tell you that's a very when you think about it, it's a very strange concept <laughs> but you know if we go on for years believing that that's normal behavior right. <laughs> there's a we lot call, to be discussed there we call the police on anybody else right <laughs> that's right <laughs> I remember telling that guy said this. Uh, I remember telling Santa Claus once, I was I was down here in Tampa from Tallahassee, we were staying here for a while, for for the holidays. And uh, I remember my aunt took me, my, aunt and my mom took me to the mall and to go see Santa Claus. So I went to the mall to go see Santa Claus, I sat on his lap and everything and I said, hey, you know, listen man, when you come, you gotta go through the back door. Because we don't have a <laughs> fireplace in my grandma's house. <laughs> So my ball fell out laughing when I told you know it, it, when I told him, that. and I remember actually saying it. I actually remember saying it. But I was serious about that thing, man. That's thing. right. Hey, I want I want that. I want them robot things, you know, the Rockwell soccer robots. But you can't can't go through a chimney, man. There's no chimney, <laughs> no chimney. You gotta go through the back door. So I was I was setting them up for a B and E, man, straight up. I said <laughs> set I cars up for a brick and <laughs> All right.
3: Interestingly enough, the Puritans had a fine against celebrating any day such as Christmas. (laughs) They condemned Christmas. and charged you a fine
0: in New England if you did it.
3: Wow.
0: (laughs) Wow. Wow. Now, there was something else very interesting. Before we play this, there's something else very interesting that you pointed out to me earlier. About the first Christmas. Yeah. In
3: Florida. Yeah, in modern-day Tallahassee. (laughs) <laughs> Hernando de Soto landed his winter encampment right there in Tallahassee in uh, 1539, and that's where they celebrated the first Christmas in the United States.
0: Tallahassee, Florida. Tallahassee, Florida. My hometown. There you go. <laughs> there you go. They probably did the highest of seven hills. <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. Right? And, uh, they found uh, they found. Pig bones there,
3: so I'm sure they had pig on the on the menu. Chitlins, <laughs> probably yeah. And chitlins and rice. It might have been a turkey or two, but chitlins right rice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's stop. Let's stop. So we're gonna go to <laughs> we're gonna go, and we're gonna play this Charlie Brown Christmas uh, from Vince Garaldi Okay, right here on the Sunday Forum. Sound of Vince Guaraldi and everybody. I'm pretty sure everybody heard that song, and knows that song. Christmas time is here by the Peanuts Gang. Oh, and yeah, Vince Guaraldi. I, yeah. I recall it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah, they're a little sorry, but uh, Christmas tree they found. But mm-hmm. you know what is this? <laughs> Great job, Charlie Brown. They all want to blame everything on just... Charlie Brown.
3: But, of course, he was the star of the show.
0: Yeah, 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 man. Listen, this is the Sunday Forum uh, Christmas morning, and we are playing the the jazz hits of Christmas right here on the show. Call in 813-239-9663, 813-239-9663. Tell us about your Christmas so far and what you're doing. and Give us a, make a, a, tell us one of your jazz favorites. And it's, it's, if it's
3: your birthday, call us because it's your
0: birthday. <laughs> it's your birthday. It's your birthday. We want to hear from you right here on the Sunday form, 3, 813-239-9663. 3, 9, 9, 6, 6, we care. We always care about you. All right. So, Mabili. Yeah. We have, um, we have so much more. Good God. Um, okay. So, we have another... Ramsey Lewis, great. Ready? Oh yeah, Ramsey Lewis. Love
3: Ramsey Lewis. Who doesn't love Ramsey Lewis? Come on, man. <laughs> Come on.
0: There's something wrong with you if you don't. Yeah, that piano. Oh man. <laughs> right. All right. So now, this was this was my favorite because uh, it, it's very upbeat, right? And mom used to put me to sleep with this, which was put me to bed. And this was one one of my favorites. Uh, and it's Santa Claus is Coming to Town by Ramsey Lewis. You're going to enjoy this, folks. Another jazz great right here on the Sunday Forum at 8.5 Tampa, Sarasota, St. Pete. that was the sound of Ramsey Lewis again. The Ramsey Lewis trio and Ramsey Lewis Christmas and Santa Claus is coming to town. A nice, smooth piece, right? Nothing overly, n- nothing depressing or anything like that. No, it's, it's upbeat, jazz, smooth type stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Drink your eggnog with your room in it or whatever it is and sit by a fire or You watch your kids open their gifts and things. and You know, even the kids enjoy it. The kids enjoy it. Yeah. Man, you know. So, listen. uh, We have some really good stuff for you. In the new year, we have a movie coming out. We we spoke of it earlier. uh, Chevalier. Mm -hmm. Chevalier. Chevalier is a story of uh, um, a man who... Actually, was Mozart's Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart's best friend? Actually, um, Mozart came to live with him in Austria during the time of um, not Austria in, in France, excuse me, during the time of yeah. uh, the Baroque period, I believe it was, mm-hmm. and, and they, um, 1700s. they hit it off. Seventeen hundreds. Seventeen hundreds. And and let, let me let me just say, uh, this gentleman was. An expert swordsman. Yep. Mm-hmm. An expert swordsman. No one could beat him. No one could beat him. Even his own his own teacher. Mm-hmm. He he surpassed the. This you know they say, and now the student becomes the master. Well, yeah, he actually became the master. He was a master swordsman, and he got into a lot of duels. Got yeah. into a lot of duels, man, and he got into you know he was. Uh, because people always wanted to try him all the time, right? Yeah. Because because of his because of his his race, yeah. uh, they wanted they wanted to uh, and jealousy that, and jealousy because <laughs> the women liked him. Oh yeah, women loved him then. And But he actually uh, he was well liked overall. But um, you know the issue of his race was always. Uh, a problem.
3: People call him the Black Mozart, but you might actually think of him as the White <laughs> Joseph Ballon <laughs> right, 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 right. Mozart is Mozart the White, is like Joseph, the white Joseph. Yeah. yeah. So um, he was there. He might have been the inspiration for the book The Three Musketeers. He was friends mm-hmm. with the Prince of Wales and Marie. He was t- he tutored Marie Antoinette in mm-hmm. piano
6: mm-hmm.
3: and may have aided in the writing of some of Mozart's music. So you know, he was quite an interesting character. Absolutely. Absolutely
0: He was totally unsung And untold till this point Absolutely Do we have a an excerpt On that That you wanted to, That you're able to play Or is it Yeah there's some excerpts
6: mm-hmm.
0: Are we able to play it or... Yeah Okay Alright so let, let's uh, I, Listen folks We encourage you We encourage you to, to pay attention to this As it comes out next year th- This coming year uh, In 2023 And it's called Chevalier Chevalier
4: Check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to World2Now Studios, where we recreate famous videos and talk about their history. My name's Andre, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, we'll be talking about the massively underrated and legendary life of Joseph Boulon, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. Joseph was widely considered to be one of the most accomplished men in Europe during his lifetime. With a laundry list of talents ranging from genius violinist to Europe's greatest swordsman, he overcame the social stigmas of his era, becoming loved, admired, and even envied by the likes of Mozart, Marie Antoinette, and even a U.S. president. So let's go ahead and get started. Joseph Boulon began his incredible life on Christmas Day, 1745, on the French Caribbean island of Guadeloupe. His father, Georges Boulon du Saint-Georges, whom I'll be calling George, was a wealthy plantation owner. His mother, Nanon, a Senegalese woman renowned for her truly stunning beauty, was the slave and personal maid of his father's wife. Now, even though George was married, and many men of the time simply disavowed any illegitimate children they had, George is said to have legitimately loved Joseph and his mother, Nanon. He not only acknowledged his son and gave him a surname, which broke convention for the time, but he also completely provided for them. As Joseph was seven years old, his father decided that he wanted better for his son. He wanted to make sure that Joseph got the best education he could. So they left Guadeloupe and his mother, Nanon, and sailed to France. Once in Paris, George hired the best tutors that he could find and enrolled Joseph in boarding school. Before leaving Paris to go back home, George made sure that his son would be taught to be the perfect gentleman.
3: This is a story, the untold story of Joseph Boulogne. He was the prodigy known as the Black Mozart, but you might consider Mozart was the white Joseph Boulogne. We're going to listen to more of this. Here
4: on the Sunday 4. Now, up to this point, although wealthy, Georges Boulogne was still considered just a commoner in France. But in 1757, he was appointed as the personal assistant to King Louis XV. He was made an officer in the King's Guard, which granted him nobility and the title of Chevalier du Saint-Georges. It would also allow him to further Joseph's education. That same year, Joseph was enrolled in the Royal Academy of Fencing and Horsemanship. Boulogne rapidly became one of the best swordsmen at the academy. The master-at-arms, Laboisier, had a son who was Joseph's classmate and friend throughout his years at the academy. He described young Joseph as well-built, with great physical strength, supple and slim with astonishing speed. No one else showed as much gracefulness and discipline. By 15 years old, he was beating the very best swordsmen at the academy. By 17, he was regarded by his peers and even Laboisier as one of the best swordsmen in Europe. But there were others that believed a man of Joseph's skin color could never be as skilled as what they would describe as a true Frenchman. Alexandre Picon, a fencing master from Normandy, sent a challenge to Joseph's father, asking him if he could publicly duel his mulatto. Now, this word is used to describe a person who is of mixed African and European ancestry. And although it's now dated, it was incredibly offensive in France. Piquant used the word as an insult, and it was taken as such. Joseph accepted the challenge. The match quickly drew a huge crowd, its supporters seeing something bigger in the duel. The crowd found itself divided between people who believed in the superiority of Piquant's skin color and those who did not. Alexandre Picot came to humiliate a young man and prove his supporters right. After all the hype, Joseph would handily defeat the fencing master Picot. And even though it was just a fencing match, it seemed to push public opinion just a little bit in the right direction. Joseph would go on to become a champion fencer. He'd graduate from the academy and earn the title of Chevalier, meaning knight in English. He could finally take his father's title. And for the first time in his life, he was Joseph Boulon, Chevalier de Saint-Georges. By this time in his life, Saint-Georges was already immensely popular, especially with the women of Paris. He was handsome, athletic, intelligent, and graceful. He was the perfect gentleman. He dazzled Parisian society, and his company became highly valued. Before he was 20 years old, two famous composers had already dedicated their works to him. It was these friendships that may have led him to what would become the true love of his life, music. In 1769, bewildered Parisians looked up to the stage and saw Joseph Bologne the best swordsman in France, playing amongst the violins of one of Paris's finest orchestras. He had never told anyone that he could even play violin. He would be concertmaster within two years, meaning he was the best of the violins. By 1772, he was getting standing ovations for his solo performances. Following year, he was named the symphony's director. Joseph's meteoric rise through the music world of Paris would make his celebrity soar to new heights. It was during this time that he began to be called La Mozannois, which meant the Black Mozart. Joseph was free to do whatever he wanted, to follow any passion that struck him, thanks to his father, who had never ceased his support of Boulogne. But in 1774, George Boulogne, the original Chevalier de Saint-Georges, passed away at his home in Guadeloupe. In his will, George had left Joseph and his mother Nanon a healthy son, but against his father's wishes and according to French law, it was given instead to Joseph's sister, George's legitimate daughter from his marriage. Joseph was left only with a heart full of grief for the man who had showed him love when most would have cast him aside. With no money to his name, he would have to rely on his own talents to get him by. Luckily, he hadn't many to choose from. Over just the next couple of years, he would participate in hundreds of duels, direct a symphony, perform solos, upstart a genre of classical music in France, compose 20 pieces of music, write comedies, and he once even had a boxing match. In 1776, the Paris Opera was struggling, financially and creatively. Boulogne was the obvious choice for the next director. But once again, he was reminded that not everything was about skill, and that his color was something that some people just could not get by. Three of the opera's leading ladies presented a petition to Queen Marie Antoinette, assuring Her Majesty that their honor and delicate conscience could never allow them to submit to the orders of a mulatto. This immediately became quite the scandal. To save himself and the queen embarrassment, Blanc would decide that he would just withdraw his name from consideration completely. In response to the petition, Louis XVI took the opera back from the city of Paris. From then on, Marie Antoinette would hold her musicals at Versailles. She limited the audience to only her intimate circle and a few musicians. Among them, Joseph Boulogne. Boulogne would play his violin for them, with Her Majesty playing along on the piano.
3: Just a few more minutes left on this program, the untold story of Joseph Boulogne. Keep it tuned here on the Sunday Forum,
4: and we're listening for, out for your telephone calls. For the next few years, Saint-Georges would bounce around charming everyone in sight, fighting, playing, and composing. But what's interesting about this time is that in the summer of 1778, Saint-Georges and Mozart would stay in the same house. During this time, Mozart would write three better-known works, potentially with the help of Joseph Boulon, playing his violin for him. By the mid-1780s, Saint-Georges became the patron of his longtime friend and admirer, Louis Philippe II, one of the wealthiest men in France and cousin to the king. Philippe was incredibly important in the story of the French Revolution. A surprisingly liberal man for someone that could be considered as royalty, he was an abolitionist and true believer in democracy. Some historians and even people of the time have stated that he secretly funded riots and women's marches in order to begin causing instability and unhappiness in the poorer classes. This palace known as Palais Egalité is said to have been the birthplace of the revolution. During the next crucial years in the history of France, Saint-Georges found himself at the side of one of its main players. Because of his celebrity status and charming ways, Philippe began to bring Joseph along on political missions with him. In 1787, Saint-Georges and Philippe would go to England to meet the Prince of Wales. Philippe wanted to garner support in England for the abolitionist movement and since the prince was an admirer of Saint-Georges and also the future king of England, the opportunity of a lifetime presented itself. Boulogne would pull out all of his tricks, he'd play concerts for the prince at parties and duel with renowned fencing masters from all over England, including a famous woman named Chevalier Dion, a French diplomat and spy in England. She can be seen here with Saint-Georges in this famous painting. To some people's surprise, Saint-Georges and Dion would have a thrilling match, with Boulogne whisking away with a victory. But what makes this match truly interesting is that it had been the second time they had faced each other. The first being many years ago, when Dion used to live in France and identified as a man. Saint-Georges would quickly find himself a favorite of the future king and persuaded him to attend a meeting with leading abolitionists of the time. On the night of the meeting, Boulogne was walking the streets of London when he was ambushed at gunpoint by four angry men. Unfortunately for them, all Boulogne needed was his walking stick. The greatest swordsman in Europe arrived a little late to the meeting with only a bruise or two to show that anything out of the ordinary had even occurred. The meeting would go well and inspire the change of views of many there. In 1807, the transatlantic slave trade would be banned throughout the British Empire. By May of 1789, Joseph had finally returned to France after two years in London, but it wasn't the same city he had left. The revolution was in the air. Panic talks began to occur all over Paris about what could happen next. For the briefest moment in time, Saint-Georges' longtime friend, Louis-Philippe, was being campaigned to the people of Paris as an alternative to the current monarch. He was popular for feeding the poor and sheltering them and was genuinely being considered. But before the idea could take hold, Louis XVI would have Philippe and any remaining chance of peace sent away. Within a month, the French Revolution had begun. As with everyone else in France, the French Revolution would completely alter Boulogne's life. Although Boulogne had enjoyed a life with wealthy friends and the company of kings and queens, he had always felt the weight of his color. Life, liberty, and especially the promise of equality would inspire Boulogne to support the revolution. In 1791, He joined the volunteer Revolutionary Army, rising to the rank of colonel and would become the leader of the 1st black battalion in all of Europe, who were simply called La Légion Saint-Georges. The men would fight bravely under Saint-Georges, distinguishing themselves during the Austrian and Netherland campaigns. Saint-Georges was always willing to protect them from unnecessary death and from harsh orders and made sure that they were treated like any other soldier. In 1793, Saint-Georges was making his way to a battle with his troops. When out of nowhere, he was arrested and imprisoned. When he asked about the charge, he was told there was none. He was being imprisoned under a new decree called the Law of Suspects. Any suspected sympathizer of the monarchy would be arrested and imprisoned. And since Saint-Georges had performed for the king and queen, his name was put on the list. Over the next 13 months, in what is now called the Reign of Terror, 26,000 people would die from guillotine or in prison, including Marie Antoinette and Joseph's longtime friend, Louis Philippe. Joseph believed his execution was all but certain. And although he had been loyal to the revolution, he was denied any leniency other than the postponement of the imminent, his own execution. In one final stroke of luck, the people of France had decided that they had seen enough death and turned on the committee that had created this law of suspects. Later that year, Joseph was finally free. While he was imprisoned, slavery in France had been abolished. A few months before, Joseph could think of nothing but his own certain death, but I like to think that when he heard this news, he thought of his mother Nanon and decided that he was finally content with his life. Saint-Georges would move to a small town outside of Paris, where he would spend the rest of his days directing for small orchestras and playing what he called the best violin of his life. In the summer of 1799, Joseph Poulon, chevalier de Saint-Georges, died at 53. Renowned fencer, prodigy violinist, and the first known classical composer of African descent. During his time, he was called La Mose which meant the Black Mozart. But he truly was so much more. A changer of minds and perspectives, he is a driving force for the idea that we are all truly capable of greatness, no matter the color of our skin.
3: And that's it. That's a a short version of
0: Chevalier. That's outstanding. That is outstanding. I look forward to the movie. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the movie. Um, the young man, I, I, don't, I don't, I forgot his name. That's going to play Chevalier, and then when we, you, you know, he looks like family, <laughs> right, right, right. And let me let me tell you, there are there are paintings of Chevalier, yeah, and I mean from life, life paintings, and there's no question at all, none about his about his blackness, yeah, and uh, he was as they said, I, you know, I don't usually you know, say that about other men per se, but I'm very comfortable in saying he was a very, he was a handsome man. Yeah. Um, And uh, there's, you know, so the, when, at the time of his death, there was a fire at his, uh, at his, at his home back, back in, in France. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, many of his personal effects were damaged. Mm -hmm. uh, Including Information there's some there's some dispute about how he died. What was it that, that, that killed him? Yeah, right? fifty three was pretty young, even though he had a full life. Right, fifty three right. is
3: young, even for that time. I think.
0: Right, right. It was believed that he had a bladder infection mm-hmm. or something like that, or uh, that that had not been uh, either that or I think it was cancer. So something that that would have that could have been described as cancer for the time, uh, but they. We're trying to figure it out, and they left it vague, very vague, in terms of what it was that killed him. So, but nevertheless, as you said, that is very young, and so there's no need, no, no, there was nothing, no foul play in terms of trying to figure that out. They just tried to figure it out, you know. That's that's all it was. But hey, listen, I tell you what, he was one heck of a person. And that is definitely one heck of a story. So, listen, let me tell you. uh, I want to say hey to everybody out there in Facebook land that's watching this morning, this Sunday morning, this Christmas morning. And I want to thank you for joining us here here on the Sunday Forum. And, uh, Mubili? Yeah, you know, I worry about the, the falling lifespan
3: in the middle of this pandemic. You know, they just took it down another seven months. It would have fallen by at least a year or two. Uh, over the during the course of the pandemic right. and it's it fallen again for another seven months the um, <laughs> the question the atlantic raises i think put it best how many republicans died because the gop turned against vaccines and i think that's a fair question given the fact that here we are in the triple and we are in the middle of winter and the numbers are rising again in florida much as they don't want to report it they're worse than china when it comes to reporting but you right. know the numbers are rising three at least three thousand deaths last week at least and maybe 32 uh i mean cases last week it, at least 10 percent of those deaths 300 some odd deaths in the tampa in the florida area in florida so i think that that's a valid question going forward next year how much longer do we have to deal with the The misinformation, the disinformation that continues to flourish and how much longer are we going to have to deal with a governor that is insisting on empowering, you know, anti-vaxxers, you know, and uh, now wants to go to court, you know, next year we should be turning the tide on this. And it seems like things are just getting worse. And that's going to be top of mind for me, you know, and it doesn't matter how you feel politically. It doesn't matter how you, because vaccines are something that we've all had to rely on. But if you're between the age of 20 and 50, you probably don't remember polio. You probably don't remember, because now in Florida, we have attorney, we have Surgeon General, we have the head of the Education Department that was uh, raised there by this governor because they are calling the, the person who's now the head of the education department in Florida called people who were interested in vaccinating their kids for school, which we have done for decades, retards. I mean, any, any legitimate person that's got a, a, a stable mind doesn't even use that word anymore. And yet this person is in office calling parents that word, you know, because they want to uh, maintain vaccinations. You know, it doesn't matter how you feel about COVID, the COVID vaccine, just vaccines in general, people are no longer willing to vaccinate their children.
0: And that worries me here in Florida. This this uh, unforgiving scrutiny, uh, unwarranted yeah. scrutiny yeah. that exists is absolutely ridiculous. And I fail to see... Fail to see how it is that we continue to. That, that, there's a, that there's even a segment of our society that thinks that this governor, this administration, is successful in any way. Yeah, Dr.
3: Fauci has warned, he's made a warning, we're living in a progressively anti science era. Yeah. And that's a very dangerous
0: thing. That is. It is. If, if history has taught us anything. You know, yeah. at, at least you know. <laughs> least I don't know. That. Remember it, polio. <laughs> you
3: know, yeah. remember what that could do. Well,
0: my sister was born with polio. Yeah. You know, and that you know she beat it, but it's like a lot of people didn't. You know, and, yeah, right. and so you know we just we just have to do better, folks. We got to do better. Listen, um, I just want to say again, mm-hmm. when we have we have uh, "Winter Wonderland" by Randy Lewis that we're going to play as we go out. Uh want to encourage people to go check out Chevalier in the coming year. Yeah. And uh, listen, as always, from our voice to the radio waves to the hearts and the minds of all of you out there, Merry Christmas. And remember yeah. that we love you and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it here on the Sunday Forum. And this is Walter Us II. It'll be man, 2023 when we see you again, Walter. Yeah, 2023, <laughs> baby. Be safe. Yeah. This is
3: Sunday Forum, and stay tuned for the Postmodern Hoot Nanny coming your way next.